The Athletic. This is episode two of The Making of Messi, exploring the history and culture of American soccer and the impact he will have on it. In case you missed it, episode one follows the Argentines' rise to stardom at club and international level. Argentina's Lionel Messi has announced his next move after deciding to leave French Giants PSG. The soccer shocker of the year, Lionel Messi is headed to Miami. This news in itself is truly just, it's beyond words. You can't put it in comparison to anything else. It's a game changer for MLS. best soccer player, Lionel Messi, stunning the world to come to Major League Soccer and play for Inner Miami. I'm so excited to be able to have a player of that caliber here. This is the most significant day in all of South Florida sports history. After months of speculation, Lionel Messi picks Inter Miami. His arrival in the U.S. isn't the first time a world-renowned player has been used to advance American soccer with their presence. It's a trend we saw at the start of this millennium, with the signing of David Beckham, who, as part owner of Inter Miami, is now one of Messi's new bosses. And a generation before, in 1975, the New York Cosmos signed the Messi of his time, the original king of soccer. His real name is Edson Arantes de Nascimento. To millions of soccer fans, he is known as Pelé. Today he joins the New York Cosmos and the North American Soccer League. There he is, the man they've been waiting for here in New York City. Soccer's greatest player today. One thousand two hundred and twenty goals later, the legendary Pele came out of retirement with a broad and gentle grin. Number ten, the most celebrated player in the history of the game. He has led Brazil to three World Cup titles, scoring more goals than any professional player in history. Pelé's forte is ball control and moves, 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 even at age 34. I had a lot of proposals to go to England, Italy, Spain, but uh, I said no, go to New York, because they want to make the soccer big in the United States. The return of Pelé has attracted worldwide interest and given professional soccer in the U.S. a king-size shot in the yard. When Pelé joined the New York Cosmos, they played in the North American Soccer League, more commonly known as the NASL. Although the league collapsed in 1984, it played a key role in growing the game throughout America. Just as those in control of MLS know Messi's potential impact, those in charge of the NASL, new signing Pelé, the most distinguished player in the world at the time, was crucial in taking U.S. soccer to the next stage. Getting the World Cup in the country was one thing, getting Pelé playing in New York was another thing. That's Clive Toy. He was instrumental in bringing Pelé to New York. I had come up with, if you go to Real or Juventus, all you can win is another championship, whereas if you come with us, you can win a country. My name's Pablo Maurer. I'm a staff writer for The Athletic. Clive Toy was a British journalist. He moved to the United States in the late 60s. He's one of the founding members of the North American Soccer League, a league in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s that for a brief moment in time seemed like it might be the first quote-unquote major soccer league to gain any traction in the United States. 
when Toy arrived in the U.S., I think he realized very quickly that the league was not going to survive without a huge name. And, you know, in the early 70s, there was no bigger name than Pelé. So Toy set about this sort of globetrotting five to six year long quest to lure Pelé, right? I mean, he followed him everywhere. He visited him in Brazil multiple times when he was playing for Santos. In 1974, he finally nailed him down, and as Toy tells it, in a hotel room in Belgium, literally sort of had Pelé sign his first contract on a napkin. No agent, nothing. So he did succeed eventually, and obviously it'd be sort of a transformational thing for the NASL and for soccer in the U.S. I come to Pelé because I believe in soccer in America. Pelé's impact in the short term was seismic. Cosmos home games became a happening. You know, I spoke to a Cosmos player years ago who told me about a game in the early 70s where there were 200 people there. And I said, you know, how do you know there were 200 people? And he said, I counted. You could count the number of people in the stands. By 1977, the team had moved from this tiny derelict stadium under the Triborough Bridge to Giant Stadium, which was brand new at the time. And they regularly drew 40, 50, 60,000 people. They drew 77,000 people for a playoff game in 1977, which sort of defies belief almost. You know, it was the largest crowd ever to see a soccer game in the U.S. at that point. It was just unheard of. Probably the most dramatic rise in the attendance has been over the past year with um, Pelé starting the whole ball rolling. Pelé inspired an upward trend in spending, which contributed to the league folding in 1984. But in a way, it had served its purpose. Pelé obviously had a huge effect in the short term, but the longer term effect, which was almost more important, was all these players who grew up watching Pelé in the 80s, particularly in the New York, New Jersey area. A lot of those guys ended up being some of the guys on the 1990 World Cup team, the first US men's team to qualify for a World Cup in 40 years. He was huge around the 94 World Cup. So his effect, you know, on soccer in the United States, it's less about the 77,000 people in Giant Stadium and the money made there and more just about his inspiration, you know, being the first huge soccer figure in the United States. Now, sir, if you will, please pass the World Cup to the USA. These games will establish a legacy for United States soccer to flourish at every level of play, including a new professional league that soon will rank with the finest in the world. From the wreckage of the NASL, the founders of MLS, when they got together in the mid-90s to form a league that would start playing in 1996, they really sort of performed an autopsy on the NASL. They learned their lessons. They chose a more reasonable path of financial prudence, you know, one that helped keep the league alive for nearly twice as long as the NASL ever existed. But eventually they did sort of realize they can enact these sort of strict salary caps and make sure teams didn't overspend, but they were still gonna have to have that megastar high watt player like Pelé. So in 2007, the league introduced the designated player rule that allows MLS franchises to sign up to three players. They're commonly known as DPs here in this country that would be sort of exempted largely from the team's salary cap. All of this meant that in 2007, the league was better equipped to welcome their new global superstar than the NASL ever was. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct pleasure and honor to introduce to Los Angeles and the world the newest member of the LA Galaxy, Mr. David Beckham. 
That season, there were 13 registered teams across the division. In 2023, MLS has 29 teams with a 30th on the way in San Diego. This level of growth is largely thanks to the arrival of David Beckham in 2007. We wanted to be this super club, this team that when people thought about Major League Soccer, the first team they thought about was the Los Angeles Galaxy. This is the moment, this is the person, and this is going to change the fortunes of not just the Galaxy, but Major League Soccer. In 2006, the LA Galaxy sold around 400 jerseys. In 2007, they sold 300,000 Beckham jerseys, 700 times more. International TV sales went from next to nothing to distribution in a hundred countries with live games in Asia and Mexico. It was a time when we really were going into what I would say is MLS 2.0, new stadiums, expansion, bringing in international players. And David kind of was the tipping point of that next generation of growth. I think MLS generally has migrated away sometimes from the sort of quote-unquote retirement league label that it had around Beckham's arrival, but I think it's still essential for the league to have superstars. I mean, you can look at Zlatan Ibrahimovic's effect on the game here in the U.S., you know, just being here for a few years with the Galaxy. Messi obviously is beyond compare. It's sort of impossible to compare his potential effect on soccer in the U.S. to anybody aside from maybe Pelé. You know, it could potentially have a similar effect on league-wide attendance, on exposure, on merch sales, you know, and even on attracting other players. I mean, obviously you see Messi is now bringing along with him Sergio Busquets and Jordi Alba, his former teammates at Barcelona. One of the quirks of MLS is the stadiums, you know, we call them soccer-specific stadiums here in the U.S., were constructed for relatively small crowds. I mean, most MLS stadiums have a capacity of between 16 and 25,000 people. That's all and well for a Wednesday or Saturday MLS game where Lionel Messi isn't on the field. But with him being here, many of these stadiums could be three, four times as large and people would show up. So it's interesting to see how MLS teams are gonna handle that. I suspect they're just gonna inflate the hell out of prices for, for seeing Messi. It's gonna become kind of a boutique experience, if you will, but we'll see what happens. In America, there is a larger focus on stars than there is on teams. Look at the NBA, obviously. Uh, Jordan, LeBron, Kobe, et cetera, et cetera. Doesn't mean that people aren't out there watching you know, whatever, the Milwaukee Bucks or something like that, but whoever LeBron happens to be playing for, <laughs> those teams are obviously much higher profile because of those players. The NBA is a star-driven league. David Stern came in and said, the name on the back's as big as the name on the front. It worked. We have Messi coming here. We have the, the Men's World Cup in 2026, obviously, is in part in the United States. By all accounts, it seems like the Women's World Cup is going to be here in 2027. You have the Olympics, you have uh, Copa America, all these sort of this confluence of things, right? And MLS has always talked about being a league of choice and being a widely consumed product by the general populace in the U.S. And, and I, I genuinely think if they can't seize all these moments and by, you know, 2027, 2028, this isn't a, quote, league of choice, as the league's commissioner is so fond of saying. I don't know that MLS will ever be a widely consumed product in the U.S. And it obviously depends on what your definition of that is, but, you know, if they can't do it now, I don't know that it can ever happen. Messi has never played club soccer outside of Europe, like a lot of players in the continent. 
My name's Nader Manoha, and I played for Real Salt Lake in MLS. How you doing, Bradley Wright Phillips, former MLS and New York Red Bull striker? The fun culture in the USA is very different to what it's like around Europe and the rest of the world. Soccer isn't the biggest sport in the country, whereas in most of the other countries it is. The one thing Europe does have over the MLS is it's been ingrained in kids from a young age. Parents, their parents and so on, supported teams, so they have that history. People who've been going to games for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, some of the rivalries have existed for, you know, centuries, even going beyond what football is itself. Whereas I think in the USA, a team might have existed for two years. And the reason it came into play is because the fans wanted to have a football team in their state and they'll celebrate it and they'll support it. But it's not as partisan as, say, it would be when you've got three, four generations worth of supporters coming in to try and make sure that they know that their team does everything they can to give them the experience that they want. In America, it's different because it's a few years behind. We're starting to see more soccer-specific stadiums in the in the US, so I think that will help. A lot more people are interested in watching these teams, and I think in a few years you'll see it start to catch up. In terms of the grind, MLS is different. The travel situation is different. You don't really take the bus that often. You don't really take the train like, say, you would do in other countries. The travelling was, was something I found really hard to get used to. That idea of travelling through the air, is different, but then to also add to that, because the country's so big, you've got different time zones. I remember flying to Vancouver from New Jersey and it was honestly like flying to England. It was crazy, it was an eye-opener. And then when you get there, there's a time difference and then you still got to go out and win that game. So that was hard. I think you have to adapt more to the different locations that you're going to play in, as opposed to just be thinking solely about the teams themselves that you'd be up against. It's more mental than anything. Once you're getting the right rest, recovery, you learn to deal with it after a week or two. In terms of the quality, there is a real mix. Within the States themselves, when I played there for two and a half years, there were lots of players who I could see that could play anywhere in the world. There were some players that I played against that were better, some that were not as good as in Europe. When I first got here, you could play against two or three really good individuals, but the whole team, their tactics wasn't as good. You play alongside some players who have achieved things, you know, whether you're talking about Ibrahimovic's, you're talking about David Villas, you're talking about, say, Messi now. You do get a chance to play with some of the best players in the world at the same time. Yeah, there was a, a stigma that the good players come when they're older. But now, like I said, the coaching, the young DPs, the young superstars they're getting from South America, from around Europe, have risen the level of the league. But the drop-off between the very best and they're not the worst player in their team, but they aren't to the same standard. I think that gap is so big that at times that's the difference between, say, the other leagues whereby the variance isn't as great. When I first got to America, it was weird. There was no promotion, no relegation. I found that hard to adjust to because for those reasons is how I could get the best out of myself in games and throughout a season. Outside of the USA, you're always playing for your job. There's consequences to every single match that you play. Whereas come the end of the season, the MLS, if you can't really make the play-in tournament, if you can't be up near the top, not every game matters to everybody. In Europe, if you're not up for it, you get relegated. And that's the only difference where I think Europe has the edge. It's different, it is different, but the moment you accept it, the more you realise what American sports culture is. And then once you do play in the playoffs, you then consider yourself to be in the playoffs the same way NFL people are in the playoffs, NBA people, NHL, you know, baseball, like, it's, it's fun. You know, it's different, but it's fun. I'm not sure if it makes it less competitive, because I've been in some of the toughest games of my life here, but I know I used to go out and it was just, you have to win this game. If you want to win the league, you have to win this game. 
yes, there is to a certain extent less drama, but then there's more emphasis on the playoffs and the playoffs across all American sports are really exciting. You hear tales of people who are great during the regular season, but like legends are made in the playoffs. People love to see who can step up in the biggest moments and that's what they class as the biggest moments. So it's about getting yourself in there with a chance to win it and then anything goes. And those are the most watched games. Those tend to be the most exciting ones. People play to a different sort of standard and people just, as I say, they raise their game. So the jeopardy is there, but just in a different light. Messi will reportedly earn more than the current nine highest paid MLS players combined. The dressing room culture for me, especially at Red Bulls, there was no drama with DPs earning more money. I think that's all players that have played in MLS knew. There was no animosity. And also our DPs at the time were Thierry Henry. You're not gonna, none of us in there are gonna ever be on the same wages as them anyway, you know? So I don't think that mess with the culture. It's just a way of life here. I think in 2020, a third of the league was earning less than $100,000 a year. And when you try and find a comparable to that across the top leagues around the world, you go, well, there isn't that much really. But then you add in the nuance of the fact that some players were earning five plus million dollars at the same time. So the dressing room, like, it's, it's not about money. I think that's the first thing. It was a good dressing room, really good bunch of guys. And most of them doing it for essentially a different reason to how you might perceive it elsewhere because they're not being paid tons of money to do the thing that they love doing. So they have to have a real love for it. Having Thierry Henry in the, in the locker room was that extra bite for me. Like every day, you, you want to go out and impress him. You want him to think that you're a good player. Henry, they let it go, Wade Phillips! He's done it again, BWP, it's 1-0 New York. You've got to be kidding me. That's about as good a goal as you're ever going to see. Thierry Henry with eyes behind his head. He lifted everyone's games and he, he held the locker room to a, a high standard. And I think you're talking about Messi coming to Miami. It, I think that would even be bigger. Imagine you're in a locker room and Messi comes in. Like I'm going to sleep early that night before training because I want to be on form. I want this guy to respect me as a player. I want to I try and help him. I want to be on the end of a pass from him. So I think it can only be beneficial for those players in the locker room in Miami. Bradley went on to become the all-time record goal scorer for the New York Red Bulls netting 126 times in 240 games. I think there is a focus more on players at times over teams. And I kind of hated it when it was first going on, just because like at times I feel like I'm the, the voice for those that you know will never be heard. When I was there, a game between DC United and LA Galaxy was Ibrahimovic versus Wayne Rooney. And it's frustrated me, as I say, as a player. But if you think about it from someone who's essentially a neutral, who doesn't really watch soccer or whatever, it'd be far easier to explain who those two players are than to explain who the teams are and why it matters. The other side of that is, if you want to grow your audience, especially that audience that's there in America, you have to have it based around the stars because a lot of the teams don't have the history of an LA Lakers or a Boston Celtics where you can sell games according to stars. This is why Messi going to Inter Miami is such a big deal because interest around Inter Miami will go up, but it's all in relation to Lionel Messi. Whereas when he's in Paris or when he's in Barcelona, obviously he brings attention to those, but after he leaves, that's still Paris Saint-Germain, that's still Barcelona. I don't think Messi will have any problem fitting into MLS. You know, we can try and bring a narrative and say like, yeah, he's going to struggle. What's he going to do about traveling? This guy's played in every competition there is that football has to offer. He's played in the World Cup. He's played in Copa America, Champions League, 
friendlies, anything, any test you have in football, Messi's been there. So I think he'll adapt very well. Maybe to travel, because he is human. But once he gets over those white lines, he's going to do messy things. He just, he just won a World Cup. Like, we're talking about a guy that's just won a World Cup. So if people think he's going to come here and, and be old and slow, it's not going to happen. It's going to be unbelievable. So Messi's like my favourite player of all time. And I've seen him do what he did for Barcelona. Those are some of the best years of me watching football. So in terms of him fitting in, ability-wise, you know, there's no question that he'll be able to be dominant within that league. But then this is when the team ethic comes in because he's had some very, very good players around him. You know, he's amplified them, but they've also amplified him to be able to be as good as he can be. I think he's going to do the best that he can to grow the game in Miami. I think he's going to have more eyes on him in America than at any other point in his career, as wild as that may sound. Because I think the difference is La Liga wants to try and be fair in Liga and they want to try and be fair to everyone. But MLS are in a position whereby their biggest asset is a player for one of the teams in their league and they will push it, push it, push it, push it, push it to the point where it'll seem like it's biased and it might be, who knows? And I, I think that'll be the biggest thing they'll have to adjust to. The fact that it's not going to be about his team. It's not going to be about his team's history. It's going to be about everything that he's doing. And they'll be shameless with it, completely shameless with it. But like I say, he's the biggest asset the league has ever had. You know, more so, in my opinion, than Pele, Beckham, Zlatan's. But I think ultimately he knows the reason why he's going there. His goal's beyond the money itself and it's a chance to grow the game for that part of the footballing world. And I think he'll do a great job of that. Messi is joining Inter Miami, who currently sit at the bottom of the Eastern Conference. My name is Felipe Cardenas, and I'm a football writer for The Athletic, concentrating mainly on Major League Soccer and international football. Inter Miami officially began MLS play in the fall of 2020. I believe it was 2018 where MLS awarded a football club to Miami. But before they actually kicked the ball, there was already news that David Beckham was going to be part of a new expansion side in South Florida. He's the face of the club. He was the face of the franchise before they kicked the ball. He's to this day, I think he's still the face of the franchise. He's the reason why Inter Miami is considered an international brand, even though they're still one of the worst teams in Major League Soccer. The owners of Inter Miami are two brothers, Jorge and Jose Mas. There were other owners involved at the time of establishment of the club, but currently the, the two Mas brothers are, are the main owners of the club and, and they have a deep-rooted history in South Florida as a, a Cuban-American family that is well-established there through construction and development projects. Their father, Jorge Mas Sr., was very well-known in the 70s and 80s as essentially a construction magnate. David Beckham, his ownership stake, I believe it's about 20%. And so much of the work goes through the Moss brothers and, and David Beckham, his role has always been on the sporting side. Yes, he's an owner and with that comes a lot of responsibility from an administrative level, but he's been very much involved in the sporting side of the club ever since they started playing in 2020. In 2021, Major League Soccer sanctioned Inter-Miami for around $2.6 million over three or four years due to the club's violation of well-established roster rules. So essentially, Inter-Miami and their previous sporting department were caught cheating. 
the cheating scandal involved signing expensive players but under reporting their salaries there is a very strict salary cap in mls and so when they brought in Blaise Matuidi, the former French World Cup winner, Gonzalo Higuain, and some other Argentine players and a Colombian defender, they, they listed them as, as players that didn't earn as much as the top earners, but essentially they were making designated player money. And so that was a big setback for the club. The sanctions limited how the club could build the roster moving forward. And I think what you see today is a very makeshift roster. You see some decent players, but you see a lot of players that I think wouldn't start on many MLS clubs. And today, they're still in last place in the Eastern Conference. They have Joseph Martinez, who is one of the premier goal scorers in the history of Major League Soccer. He moved over from Atlanta United. But other than him, it's a weak squad. It's it's not a squad of stars. And I think that was the, the potential here. That was the, the purpose was for Inter-Miami to become like a Galactico team of MLS, but it's gonna take time for them to establish that. Jorge Mas is probably one of the most outspoken owners in MLS, and he has always said that Inter-Miami was going to be a well-known club around the world and they were going to win multiple trophies. That was his speech from the very beginning, you know, before the pandemic and before the sanctions. And I don't think that's changed, but certainly the monetary potential here as a brand is, is going to eclipse anything that happens on the field until they're good. And until that happens, we're going to hear a lot more about the brand exploding, the jersey sales, what this means for Messi's business uh, as a whole. You're going to see Inter Miami probably do tours in Asia, European tours in the offseason and to really build the brand internationally. So that's going to be the story immediately. And until they win, I think they will just be one of the biggest branded clubs in North America. This 2023 season, what's left of it, we, you know, we're, we're more than halfway through the season in MLS. I think it's going to be really interesting what happens with Messi and the rest of the squad and where they end up. Right now, they're not in the playoffs. Nine teams from each conference advance to the new formatted MLS playoffs and Inter-Miami are, are well below the playoff line. And I think there's going to be a point where mathematically they may be out and Messi is still on the team, but they won't be a playoff team. Pablo Maurer, athletic staff writer. You know, it's funny. One thing I've thought about Miami is obviously they're struggling mightily in gate attendance. They're one of the most poorly attended teams in MLS. And I, I feel like obviously every single game is going to be sold out with Messi. And I do think they're setting a precedent for themselves. The LA Galaxy did this with David Beckham. You know, the Galaxy ended up signing Steven Gerrard and Zlatan and these other huge names because they became sort of the standard bearer for MLS when it came to that big star megawatt kind of thing, right? And I don't think if you're in Miami, you know, your reality is never going to go back to being able to get away with playing sort of college kids, homegrown players, that sort of stuff. You're going to have to find a replacement for Messi. But, you know, by all accounts, that may be what they want. Miami is a market that's very star driven and people want that element of celebrity and glitz and stuff. So Messi is probably the start of something pretty similar long term for Miami. Coming up on episode three, Messi and his legacy. We will dive into how Messi will change Major League Soccer and the sport in the United States. The Making of Messi is an athletic media production. It was presented by Mike Zimmerman. It was written and produced by Mike Zimmerman, Mike Stavrou, and Jay Beal. The executive editor was Ben Green. 
and the managing editors were Ian McIntosh and Alex K. Jelski. The Athletic.